So at this time in the church year, we typically talk about what's called the ascension. And we say something to the effect every, every week uh, with the creeds that Jesus ascended to the Father. And the ascension of Jesus always goes right before the events of Pentecost, which is really when the church becomes the church, when the Holy Spirit comes to all the believers. Um, but we don't really know always what to do with that idea of ascension. And you can see this in art, um, just Google it if you want, that uh, you, you'll see Jesus kind of floating and the disciples sort of looking around. But that doesn't really capture the meaning. It only depicts the events. So that raises kind of our question of the day. Like, okay, Jesus ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And? What, what does that mean? Now, in a typical John fashion, if you heard during the, uh, the, the gospel reading, Jesus is talking kind of in circles, and you get a sense that he's saying a lot, but it's hard to figure out what he's actually saying. Um, and so rather than kind of going through it line by line, which would take us, I think, like an hour and a half, I just want to focus in on that last part because it has everything to do with the ascension. Um, Jesus uses the future tense, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the present tense to depict a future event. And so he says, I am no longer with them, I am going to you, speaking to the Father. Which is John's way of saying Jesus ascends to heaven after he is raised from the dead. In that moment in the narrative, it hasn't happened yet, but he talks in a way as though it has already happened which is a way of saying it will happen. This is why no one likes grammarians, because they're not fun people. Uh, but anyway, to understand the ascension, and this is again typical of John, we have to go back, way, 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 way back. Um, really to the very beginning, that, that God establishes the earth to be his sacred space in the place of his presence. And then something goes terribly wrong and his presence departs. And the rest of the biblical narrative is asking the question, how does God's presence return? Now, if I can give a shameless plug in case you didn't get the email in my Bible study between the services, we're going to begin a conversation today about that sacred space, looking very, very carefully at Genesis 1 through 3, the stories of creation. I promise you, you will never look at the Bible the same again. But we're not going to go into that now because we don't have the time. But this question of how God's presence return lingers for a while. And it starts to get an answer with Moses. That's like the whole burning bush thing. And it turns out he's speaking to God. And God says, eh, take off your shoes, you're, in, you're on holy ground. Which would lead us to, to wonder, why is that holy ground? Now, eventually, God gives this charge to Moses that he's going to go into Egypt and be the, God's first big prophet, major prophet, and lead God's people out of slavery and eventually into the promised land. They encounter some bumps along the way. But after God 
challenges Pharaoh to these demonstrations of power and Pharaoh finally relents and then they go and they cross the sea and, and all of that. They go to Mount Sinai. They go to a mountain where God's presence comes down temporarily at the top. It's not a coincidence. And God gives Moses Torah, his teaching or his law. And one of the really, really, really important things that God gives Moses there is essentially the ancient equivalent of the blueprints of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is sacred space. And it is constructed in some very specific ways. And it is meant to be the place where God dwells. And when God's presence comes and dwells, there are very specific rules and guidelines needed to follow because the people in general are unclean. And God comes and dwells in that space in some very dramatic ways. And for many generations, that is how the God's chosen people interact with God. It's in that tabernacle. And you get a very clear sense over time that that's how God likes it. Because the tabernacle, or sometimes you'll hear it called as like the tent of meeting or something like that, the tabernacle has the ability to be taken down. It's like a tent. You take it down and it moves. It is mobile sacred space and it travels with God's people. And eventually, the great King David, from whom the great Israel, king of Israel will be born, gets into his head that since all the other gods in the area have these really neat temples, established places where they're suppo- they supposedly dwell, he wants that to be like his God too. And God pushes back on that for a couple of reasons. Uh, on the one hand, he, again, he likes being mobile. It's easier, or it's, sorry, it's not easier. It's the opposite of that. It's harder, because words have meaning. It is harder to idolize the building if it is just a tent that travels. And that becomes a very, very serious danger, even for us today. Surely not here, but how many people have been a part of a church that has almost come to blows over the color of carpet? I hear a couple of laughs, stifled laughs. It's because it happens, because we idolize what is supposed to be our sacred space. So on the one hand, God doesn't want that. He likes being mobile. He likes to be able to travel with his people. It's it's not just a metaphor, but it is also a metaphor. And then on the other hand, he says no to David because he has too much blood on his hands. David was a great warrior. Now, eventually God relents, but he says no, not to David. He says yes to his son, Solomon. And Solomon builds this amazing temple. It is the place of sacred space, and God's presence does come and dwell. Um, but it becomes an institution. And if I know anything about people, it's when you institutionalize something, it becomes rife with abuse. It becomes a place of power. And people love power. Because if you have power, you can do things how you want. 
And the story of the temple from there, from the place that, or the story of the place of God's presence gets complicated. It becomes kind of a, a place of financial and spiritual abuse off and on. Sometimes they get it right, not always. And eventually it is destroyed along with the city of Jerusalem and people go off into exile. And then the people of God have to wrestle with this idea of where is God? Because it's not like you can say, oh, he's in that, that building over there on Mount Zion. And they start to come to this amazing conclusion by way of the prophet's that do you really think that the all-creator of the universe is contained in a space that you build with your hands? Which as, as an established church, we have a wonderful church building here. Is this really God's house? I mean, it is. We call it God's house. But God's pretty specific about where he dwells. Hold that thought. Now, eventually, efforts are made and they succeed in rebuilding the temple. The people weep because it's not as nice as the previous one. And there's an odd quirk in the narrative that God's presence is never described as returning. Even amongst the intertestamental and rabbinic literature, God's presence isn't there. Like, it's still the temple, but it's not the same. So, as we talked about last week, when Jesus hits the scene, John, as narrator, is very clear that Jesus is the temple of God. If you want to know where God is, what God looks like, what it means to encounter God, you ask yourself, what does it look like and what does it mean to encounter Jesus? And it's a very important question because the word God can mean almost anything. It can mean a higher power. It can mean a creator. It could mean the God of, I mean, if you're Greek or Roman, the God of wine or the God of the hearth or the God of family. Uh, you can literally define God to mean anything at this point. You can't do that with Jesus. And encounters with Jesus never leave people the same. So Jesus goes around, and, and uh, to put it in a, a goofy way, he goes around being God all over the place. And people come alive. People find healing, restoration. And not just like their hand starts to work again, but their hearts are open. They, they see for the first time, not because they were blind before, but they now see reality for what it is. That even in my brokenness and sinfulness, God has made a way for me to encounter his presence unlike any time before. But there's a problem. Jesus is human. He's fully divine, fully human. Uh, I wouldn't get too caught up in explaining how that works. It's one of the great mysteries of the way of Jesus. But the fact that he's human and one man means that he only exists in one place at one time. And up until the ascension, that was true. Now, Jesus goes to his grave 
and God raises him from the dead three days later. And lo and behold, it's not just his victory over death because that ripples or it echoes or it extends, however you want to say it, to us. That God will raise us on that last day just like he raised Jesus, but he's actively raising us from the dead too. That when we are baptized into Jesus, we are buried with him in that baptism and we are raised to new life just like God raises us. I don't know where you are in life or I don't know where everybody is anyway, but God raises the death in your own heart. And if I know anything about people, it's that we all have death in our hearts. And God transforms that, redeems it, and raises it. But even in his exalted state, his, this resurrection body, Jesus is still one man. And he walks around with his disciples sometimes. He has breakfast with them, which consists of broiled fish. I've been very clear that that's disgusting for breakfast, but whatever. Unless it's locks. Mmm, love locks. But it's one guy occupying one space. Now, curiously, as we heard in our reading, Jesus says, I'm no longer with them, I'm going to the Father. When uh, Jesus uh, uh, is first seen by Mary, who thinks he's the gardener uh, because she's in this garden around this tomb, and spoiler alert, he is the new gardener of the new garden of delight or the new garden of Eden. We don't have time to go into that, um, but that pff, blows your mind. Uh, Mary is so excited, and then Jesus says, don't cling to me yet. I have not gone to the Father yet. And then Jesus finally ascends and is seated at the right hand of the Father. If Jesus had not ascended to the Father, he would remain one man in one space. And now, seated at the right hand of the Father, he takes his throne over creation, his rightful place as the true king. And straight through the Bible, you see this mostly, or especially in the, in the Psalms, but this is true like throughout all of human history, uh, as long as there were kings, that if the king is a good king and he's on his throne, everything's going to be okay. And so this Jesus, who was one man in one space, this Jesus that John identified as the temple, the place of sacred space, the one that you look at if you want to know what God is like, is now on the throne over all creation, interceding, praying for us to the Father. Did you know that Jesus prays for you? That's pretty high credentials. Sometimes people will say, oh, pastor, can you pray for me? And then they talk about that for a little bit, and, and I get the sense that, oh, they think my prayers matter more. No. For so many reasons, no. <laughs> um, but I think they do for Jesus. And so the ascension 
It is about sacred space. Jesus saying, I am no longer with you. I, have, I, I, I leave them in the world. I am going to the Father is not in a weird way about absence because we will learn again next week that God then places his sacred space in us. That if Jesus is on the throne and we are his people, God's presence resides in us and with us. And then it is our charge to be his presence and his ambassadors, his subjects, if you want to use king language, everywhere we go and with all the people that we meet and serve. You, me, as loyal subjects of Jesus, as the people of God, bear this sacred space, this divine presence. But only because we are cleansed in Jesus and because he is now our king sitting on the throne over all creation. Amen.